If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark, please. Chapter 10. Starting in verse 13. Mark chapter 10, verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, you can use the Bible in front of you. Black Bibles in the pew. If not, you can pull out your phone app as long as you pinky promise not to pull up Facebook in the middle of the sermon. In Sunday school, we've been talking about the three C's. We've been saying contrast creates clarity. Contrast creates clarity. Contrast brings things into focus. And this truth is often abused by young photographers. Young photographers haven't really learned how to use their camera well. You know, they go to take a picture and they're kind of breathing heavily, so the shot comes out slightly out of focus. Or they grip the camera with a death grip every time they push the button, and so the lines are slightly blurry. In the biz, the photography biz, we call this a soft shot. And young photographers aren't particularly concerned with soft shots. The reason why is because they have fancy photo editing software. And so they say, yeah, it's not perfectly clean and sharp and crisp. It's not perfectly clear. But I'll load it up in my software and I'll add a lot of contrast. And that contrast will create clarity where there was none before. Now, you don't have to be a photographer to understand this. If you take pictures with your iPhone and you go to apply your Instagram filters... Like half of what your Instagram filter does is just apply contrast. And that contrast is supposed to make your very bad picture look better by making it look more clear. Contrast creates clarity. Well, I think Mark understood this principle, and it's obvious in the way that he kind of constructed his gospel account. This morning, in the 10th chapter of Mark, we have two accounts back-to-back that are completely in contrast. And I think that Mark put them there together to show us something, to make something clear. What Mark is showing us is, how should we approach Jesus, and how do we receive the kingdom of God? The first way to approach Jesus and to receive the kingdom of God is found in verse 15, which reads, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. The other way to approach Jesus and to receive the kingdom of God is seen in the way that the rich young ruler tries to approach God. He says, what must I do? What must I do? Now, real quick, we call him the rich young ruler, even though it doesn't say that in the text, because we know that from this account and from the account in Luke that he is rich, and we also know from the account in Matthew that he's young. So he's typically called the rich young ruler. So the question is, brothers and sisters, how should we approach Jesus? And if we're evangelists, which I hope, yes, we all nod our heads, we are evangelists, how should we encourage other people to approach Jesus? How should we encourage people to think about receiving the kingdom of God? Well, as we read today's text, I think we see at least four different ways that these two stories contrast how we ought to approach Jesus. That is, I think from at least four different angles, maybe you might find a fifth one that I didn't find, from at least four different angles, these two stories show us 
the right way and the wrong way to approach Jesus. They show us the right way and the wrong way to go about receiving the kingdom of God. Let's read the text and find out for ourselves. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, Well, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to them, Well, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant and infallible word. Amen. Now, both of the accounts from today's text involve coming to Jesus. In verse 14, we read of Jesus telling the disciples, quote, to let the children come to him. Let the children come to him. In verse 21, we read of Jesus telling the rich young ruler to abandon everything and come, follow me. The disciples are trying to prevent children from coming to Jesus, and Jesus is trying to get a man to come to him. Now, from what we read in the account of the rich young ruler, it seems like the first point of the contrast that we see in this text is that the disciples are showing favoritism, where there is no favoritism found in Jesus. It seems like these disciples make no effort to try to stop the rich young ruler as he approaches Jesus. He's young, he's wealthy, he's powerful, he's probably good-looking, 
right? Because how can you be young and wealthy and powerful and not be good looking? And he's trying to approach Jesus, and the disciples seem to just kind of let him pass. There's no mention of them trying to stop him. But when the children are brought to Jesus, the disciples rebuke the parents. They try to block the children's access to Jesus. Look at verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked him. Now, we've talked about this a little bit before, so you might remember that children in the ancient Near East, they had no standing in society. We didn't value children then the way we value children now, right? They were near the bottom of the social ladder. They didn't really have a lot to contribute, and they required a lot of time and attention. At best, childhood was seen as a kind of nuisance something to be endured between birth and adulthood when you could really start contributing to the society and to your family. It seems like the disciples here, at their best, were trying to maybe shield Jesus from distractions. Maybe they think Jesus is all about preaching the kingdom of God everywhere he goes, and these kids, they're young, they're dumb, they can't understand it, and so he, they, they don't need to bother Jesus. But I think what we see here is probably something a little more insidious. At worst... I think that the disciples did not want these statusless people coming near their rabbi. But when the rich young ruler approaches, they clear a path. You know, the man has status, he has money, maybe he can contribute to our ministry, that sort of thing. Maybe this is the kind of partiality that James is condemning in the second chapter of his epistle, where we read, Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but to the poor man you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? In allowing this rich, powerful man to approach Jesus, have the disciples revealed the evil contents of their heart? If so, I want you to know that I, I try not to judge them too harshly. I'm, I'm trying to be empathetic with the disciples as they reveal this evil content of their hearts. And I think you should be a little slower to judge them in your hearts as well. You know, none of us really think that we're guilty of the kind of evil that we see in other people. And we tend to think that if we were in this situation, we would totally let the children pass and we wouldn't show any favoritism. You know, we're not making poor people sit by our feet in church. But brothers and sisters, it is all too easy to fall into this same kind of sin. You know, we'll take a phone call from someone that we want to keep ourselves in favor with because of what they can do for us. But we might forward somebody's phone call who's always in need or really can't contribute anything to our lives, who we may consider a burden. Those who have lesser status in our circles, even within the church, are easy for us to ignore even if they're asking for us to help them better follow Jesus. But the cooler people, the wealthier people, the more influential members of our church, we tend to make time for them. You should know that the partiality that the disciples show here is not shown by their master. In verse 21, we read that Jesus did, in fact, love the rich man. That's what it says. It says he looked at him and loved him. But he also loved the children. And you can see that in the way that he teaches, treats the children. He takes them, 
and he puts them in his arm and he holds them like a father would? In the mind of God, neither the children nor the rich man are any more or any less deserving of his love or of his time or of his attention. Both are sinners. And both deserve wrath more than they deserve love. Now you may be wondering, well, Sean, aren't, aren't children innocent? Are they really sinners? Well, we'll circle back around to that. The parents already have their answer. Now notice that the disciples are once again showing their hard-headedness. Okay? Jesus, earlier in chapter 9, had already warned the disciples, stop trying to push people away from following me. Stop trying to prevent people from following me. And here, not long after that, the disciples are doing the very same thing again. The last time it was about clickishness, you know. Well, those guys aren't part of the official 12, and so they're not really with us. They don't really count. This time, their sin of partiality has more to do with favoritism and status. The text says in verse 14 that Jesus was indignant about their behavior. Indignant, of course, just meaning very, very, very angry. Maybe part of the reason that Jesus is so upset about this is because he's having to teach the disciples the same thing over and over again. Jesus told them to stop doing the things that they're doing not that long ago. I mean, last time Jesus taught them this, he literally put a child in his arms and said, hey, you need to be more like this. And now the like this that are trying to approach Jesus are being met with resistance by the disciples. That's hard-headed. We should all be thankful that Jesus is patiently enduring with us as he teaches us the same truths over and over and over again as he continues to sanctify us. Now, before moving on, we should make sure to understand that Jesus blessing the children here has less than nothing to do with infant baptism. It also has less than nothing to do with children partaking of communion. I don't think that anyone in this church might think that, but it's such a strong argument historically. Whenever people talk about baptizing infants, they come here and they say, see, don't try to stop infants, children, from coming to Jesus. You'll notice in this text, though, that there's no baptism taking place. There's no communion taking place, and yet children are still approaching Jesus. In this church, we are committed to having our children pursue Jesus, approaching Jesus, receiving the kingdom of God through Jesus. As a matter of fact, it's written into our church covenant. When you join this church, you sign a church covenant that says that you agree to help all the parents in this church raise the children up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. To not baptize a baby is not the same thing as preventing a child from approaching Jesus. The next contrast that we see here has to do with justification. Now, justification is a biblical word. It's a little bit bigger, so we kind of tend to be afraid of it, but all it simply means is that we're declared righteous before God. That's what justification means. The Bible is clear that God is holy and He's righteous and that He's just and that He will punish sin. And the bad news of the Gospel is that because we're sinners, that means that a holy and righteous judge is going to judge us. Right? We are at enmity with God, says the Bible, and God is at enmity with us. So the most important question for every single person in this room to ask is how can a sinner be made right with God? 
how can a sinner be made right with God? The rich young ruler asks a similar question in today's text. But the way that he words it shows that he doesn't really understand how he should try to relate to God. In verse 17, he asks this, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? And his question really resonates with us as Americans. We're doers. We are pull ourselves up by the bootstrap kind of people. You know, when there's a job to get done, we just get it done. A war, we're going to go do it, we're going to win it. Another war, we're going to win that one too. We don't talk about the wars that we didn't win, but anyways, we win wars. You know, if something's broken, we fix it. If we're being oppressed by a foreign monarchy, we throw them off and we throw the tea in the bay. You know, if we want to advance in our careers, we're the kind of people who work 40 hours and go to night school so that we can do better. We as a people are doers. So it makes sense then that when we come to think about our relationship with God, we tend to think about it in terms of doing. What do I need to do to make God happy? What do I need to do to be okay with God? We never even stop to consider that maybe there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. A drowning man who can't swim is incapable of saving himself. We never even consider the fact that maybe God has to be the one to do something to save us. In many ways, brothers and sisters, we act like the rich young ruler. We approach God asking what we need to do in order to fix our sin situation. Now, here's the contrast. I don't think a child would approach God that way. What can a child do to earn salvation? Nothing. As a matter of fact, the text here tells us that it wasn't even the child's idea to come to Jesus. It says that the parents were bringing the children to Jesus. In contrast, we see the rich young ruler approaching Jesus like a real go-getter. You know, this is not the first time that the rich young ruler has thought like this either. This has been the pattern of his life. He's been trying to do things to fix his sin problem with God ever since he was a youth. He tells Jesus that. He says, yeah, I've been obeying obeying all the commands ever since I was young. Jesus responds to the man's question by telling him to obey God's law. Look at verse 19. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. You'll notice here that the rich young man who says that he's been so careful to observe the law his whole life doesn't even recognize that Jesus has added a commandment that's not part of the Ten Commandments. I wonder if Jesus is trying to show him that he doesn't even really understand the law as much as he thinks. But I think that Jesus intends this to stimulate the man to recognize that he's incapable of doing anything to earn salvation. I think Jesus is holding up this part of the law before the man's face like a mirror. And I think that he's hoping that the man will look at this mirror of God's law and go, oh wow, I can't do anything. I I can't. I can't obey these things. But he doesn't. I think that Jesus is hoping that this question will probe the depth of the man's heart, leading him to adopt the posture of a child. 
which is a posture of helplessness. Helplessness, brothers and sisters, is what allows a child to receive the kingdom of God according to Jesus. Not virtue. If you read this text and you think that Jesus is extolling the virtue of children, you're not reading your Bible very carefully, and you probably haven't spent much time around children. Children are sinners. Children are not full of virtue. I live with two of them. They cannot comprehend the law, much less obey it. Children are greedy. They are selfish. They are self-centered, impatient, jealous, spiteful, rageful, conniving little liars. Not to say it too strongly. Maybe that's just my children. Nobody had to teach them how to be that way. Most of us do our best from an early age to try to teach our children the right moral example from God and His law. And yet, sin arises naturally out of their dead hearts. It's not the virtue of children, of the virtue of children that Jesus wants us to emulate because they have no virtue. It's their helplessness. To receive the kingdom of God as a child is to receive it as one who can do nothing to earn it. A child has absolutely nothing to bring to the table. Children receive out of sheer neediness, not out of ability or merit. The man comes to Jesus and he says, what can I do? Tell me what I can do. Tell me what I can contribute. I don't need anyone. I don't need anything. I'm here. I got this. The child recognizes something totally opposite. But notice that the man, he doesn't feel dejected by Jesus' command to consider the law. Considering just a portion of the law, it doesn't lead him to despair and desperation like it should, like it does us. Rather, it seems like the man is emboldened. Jesus says, well, actually, you need to obey this law, that law, this law, that law. And the guy goes, fantastic. I've been doing this my whole life. I got it. It's almost like this man considers the law, And then says, well, actually, yes, this is fantastic. I can actually do all these things that you want me to do. I can receive the kingdom of God. He seems like he trusts in his own abilities, but a child very seldomly trusts in his ability to keep the law. But he must not trust totally in his obedience to the law for salvation, or else he wouldn't be approaching Jesus in the first place. You know, he says he's been obedient to the law ever since he was a young child, ever since his youth. And yet he still feels like he has to approach Jesus and double check. You know, ask another question. What, what else should I do? You know, this guy's a real type A personality, a real go-getter. He has an agenda, and he gets it all done. All the boxes are checked. But what if he's left a stone unturned? What if there's been a law that he hasn't obeyed? What if there's been something that he should have abstained from, but he didn't abstain from it? I better check just to make sure. And this, brothers and sisters, is one of the most terrible burdens of justification by works. When you think that you can be justified, when you think that you can be made right by God by doing enough good things and not doing enough bad things, you walk around with a constant, low-grade sense of anxiety that maybe you haven't done enough to keep you out of hell. 
maybe you haven't done that one thing that you should have done in order to be made right with God. Even the way that this man's question is phrased shows that he doesn't really understand and he's kind of been trained up to think about earning his reward rather than simply receiving it. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when you think about inheritance, you typically don't think about having to work for it. It's something that you inherit. It's just something that you receive by virtue of being related to someone who had wealth that you didn't have, and you get it when they die. But this man thinks that he can do something to earn inheritance, as if he comes from a family where the father says, yes, actually, I have a great fortune for you, and you can get it if you do all of the right things that I say you should do. The doctrine of justification by faith alone frees us from this constant low-grade anxiety. And it teaches us to love boldly and powerfully as redeemed children of God. Children don't walk around with a low-grade sense of anxiety wondering if their parents really love them. Wondering if they're in good standing with their parents. Wondering if they've done enough to please them. Now, parents can train their children to think that way over time, but naturally, children just kind of assume that they are in a good standing with their parents. They just trust that their parents love them and that they don't have to earn that love. My wife and I once discipled a young woman who wore a lot of makeup. A lot of makeup. A lot of makeup. She caked her face with makeup. I eventually brought it up as part of our discipleship, and she was crushed, crushed. And I was, uns- I was surprisingly gentle, gentler maybe than I've ever been. As she was crying, she, she vowed adamantly to me that she was going to stop wearing makeup. You know, I tried to tell her that wearing makeup wasn't a sin. My concern was that maybe there was something going on in her heart where she couldn't look in the mirror and be satisfied with the way that God made her. She had to literally transform herself into something else with pain on her face every single day. She responded by asking me again, well, just what do I need to do? Tell me what I need to do. And that's what we all want, isn't it? We just, we just want to know what we need to do. Just tell me what I have to do. We don't want to have to think about heart issues. We don't want to have to deep dig deep down into the dirty recesses of our sinful hearts and try to figure out what needs to change at a heart level. We just want to know, what do I need to do? Like the rich young ruler. But that's not the way our relationship with God works. We can't do enough good things to fix our relationship with God. God is not content with morality adjustment. Jesus did not come to make us nice. He came to make us new. I think Jesus knew this, and so he did something that's so wise that only the Son of God could have thought of it. In verse 21, in his response to this man's confidence and his ability to keep the law, Jesus tells the man to do the one thing that he cannot do. Verse 21 reads, Go, Sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. This is Jesus' way of showing the man that receiving the 
kingdom of God isn't a matter of doing or not doing. Jesus knew that the only thing that this rich young ruler couldn't do was walk away from his wealth. And he called him to it. He called him to a place of utter helplessness to show him that he could not obey his way into heaven. Now, as soon as the man heard these words, his world collapsed. He knew he couldn't do it. The thing that the man can't do, brothers and sisters, is not necessarily give up his wealth. The thing that he can't do is go to heaven and keep his wealth at the same time. Those are two different things. Jesus explains later in verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus tells the man, go and give away your wealth. And the text says that the man went away with a fallen face. But money isn't the problem. Heaven will be full of rich people. This room is full of rich people. If you live in America, you fall under the category of rich. Heaven will be populated with rich people. The problem is what money does to our hearts. It's not the money itself. Jesus doesn't tell the man to give away his possessions because he thinks possessions are evil. He tells the man to give away his possessions because his possessions have trained him to trust in his possessions. His possessions have trained him to trust in himself and not in God. Now, consider a child. What possessions does a child have? None. He depends entirely on his father or mother for everything, from emotional care to food and clothing. But a rich man, he trusts in his money. He trusts in himself. If he needs something, if he wants something, he just goes and buys it. There's never a sense of desperation. There's never a sense of dependence. It's not the riches themselves that make it difficult to enter the kingdom. It's the way that they teach us to trust in all the wrong things. The Bible tells us that the warriors, they trust in their chariots and their strong horses. It tells us that the rich trust in their money. The religious trust in their own good deeds to get them to heaven. The learned trust in their education. The philosophers of the age trust in their wisdom. But we as Christians trust in Jesus Christ and His finished work alone for salvation. And children trust their parents. They do so implicitly. They don't trust in themselves. And they know that they need help from outside of themselves. Luke 6.20, excuse me, in Luke 6.20, Jesus says these very often abused words. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now Jesus is not saying that the poor people are blessed because they're poor. He's not saying that they're going to go to heaven because they're poor. What Jesus is saying is that it's so much easier for a, poor piece, for a poor person to see themselves as needy. And you have to see yourself as needy to get to heaven. The greatest enemies to faith are pride and self-sufficiency. And poverty trains us to have very little of both. The main danger of riches is that it trains us to live our lives expecting to be able to handle everything our own to be able to buy whatever we want, whatever we need. 
But friends, you cannot buy God. God owns the universe. What do you have that you can offer to the God of the universe? We cannot pay or bribe our way into heaven. As Jesus says in verse 24, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of heaven? And then I would add, when your trust is in your own ability to get yourself there. How difficult is it? Well, Jesus gives us a word picture. He says it's like a camel trying to go through the eye of a needle. The eye of a needle was not a gate in the outer Jerusalem wall that camels had to crawl under. Jesus literally means a camel and a needle. How difficult is it? But Jesus also says later in the text, all things are possible with God. And that's the only hope that we have as rich people in making it to heaven. In our own flesh, in our own abilities, in the way that our own hearts naturally tend to work, it's impossible for us as wealthy people to go to heaven. But if we are trusting in Christ and Christ alone for salvation, it is possible. So my simple application question for you is, are you trusting in Christ alone? Or are you trusting in something else? Are you trusting in your own good deeds, church attendance, giving, education? What, what, I, don't, I don't know what it might be. But we're all naturally so inclined to begin to trust something other than God. The next point of contrast that we see here is the contrast of the Lordship of, of Jesus Christ. The Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're from Decatur, Alabama, or really anywhere in the Bible Belt, you know people who claim to follow Christ, but who live like the world. You know people who claim to believe the Gospel, who claim to believe in Jesus, but the fact that they don't really believe the Gospel is borne out in their lives. They do not fully submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. They do not see Jesus Christ as a King who must be obeyed as well as a father who ought to be loved. Sometimes this lack of lordship in their lives comes in the way that they deny truths in the Bible. You know, they have no problem obeying the moral precepts of Jesus' teaching, but they just kind of reject some of the doctrinal truths that Jesus gives. Whatever that may be. Sometimes it comes with people who have no problem affirming all of the points of the statement of faith, you know, who are willing to agree with all of Orthodox Christian teaching but who live lives of immorality, who don't submit with their actions as well as their words. Sometimes, the lack of submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ is hidden on a deeper level. You have people who kind of hide under this thin veneer of Christian orthodoxy. Yes, absolutely, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, Virgin Mary, I believe all of it. And they live basically good moral lives just like the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler, he might be confused about how justification works, but it would have been pretty typical for Jews in his day. But he understands the Jewish precepts. He believes them. He wants to obey them, and he's been trying to faithfully obey them all of his life. But apparently, that's not enough. He discovered a rule that he couldn't obey. The Lord Jesus doesn't call us to obey the commands that we want to obey. Jesus gave him all these commands, and he was happy to obey all of them, except one. 
The Lord doesn't call us to obey the commands that we want to obey. He's not okay with selective obedience. He's not okay with partial obedience. He's not okay with intermittent obedience. By all appearances, this man was willing to submit to the Lord Jesus. Back in verse 17, we read that the man ran up to him and knelt at his feet. Kneeling is a sign of submission. It's something that rich, powerful people did not do in the ancient world. By all appearances, this man is ready to submit to Jesus. And it is here that we learn a powerful lesson. Not everyone who kneels at the feet of Jesus submit to him as Lord. If Jesus would have been a harsh ruler, calling the man to sheer white-knuckled obedience, the man would have submitted. He's been doing that his whole life. But Jesus calls this man to something else. He calls this man to take up his cross. He calls this man to die to his flesh and to this world. He calls this man to put his idols to death. And so the man goes away distraught. Now in verse 17, this man calls Jesus good. And Jesus responds in verse 18. We read, And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. I don't think that Jesus is here saying, Why do you call me good? I'm not God, so you shouldn't call me good. I think it's quite the opposite. I think what Jesus is saying here is that on some level you call me good because you recognize that I am God and only God is good. Everywhere that Jesus has gone so far in the book of Mark, people have recognized something different about him. When he's teaching, people go, what, what kind of authority is this? When he has encounters with demons, people say, who has power over demons like this? When he comes into contact with a leper, the leper becomes clean. People go, what, what's going on with this guy? When a, a man comes before him to be healed, Jesus forgives his sins, and they go, who is this? Nobody can forgive sins except for God. And here this man sees Jesus, and he's probably been witnessing his miracles and his teaching, and he goes, good teacher. And Jesus goes, that's right, I'm good. Even if you don't intellectually understand this, on some level you understand who you're dealing with which is perfectly in line with the Gospel of Mark, which says it's the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now contrast this man's false submission. This man who on some level recognizes Jesus as God and yet who still turns away from Him. Contrast that false submission with that of a child. Think about how easy it is for a child to submit to Jesus as Lord. The child has no intellectual preconcep preconceptions. The child hasn't been trained to think that other people should bow before him or her. The child has nothing to offer, nothing to lose, everything to gain. You know, a helpless child easily steps into a lowly position. But a rich man, he has a hard time obeying. He's used to other people obeying him, submitting to him, bowing the knee to him. The rich young ruler who has obeyed all of the law, supposedly, since his youth, will not obey this one command from Jesus, showing us that kneeling is not the kind of submission that Jesus is looking for. 
There is nothing special about kneeling before Jesus. Earlier in the book of Mark, a bunch of demons came and fell before Jesus' feet. On the last day when the trumpet sounds and everyone is brought to judgment, every single person will bow the knee to Jesus. There's nothing special about it. Jesus is looking for something more than your physical posture. Jesus is concerned with the posture of your heart. To submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ is to not do so partially or temporarily or sporadically or externally. To submit to His Lordship in these ways is to submit to His Lordship not at all. The rich young ruler shows us that there is such a thing as external humility and it shows us that this external humility is worthless. If you notice the reading that we had today for the assurance of pardon is exactly this. The man is thanking God. Oh, thank you, God, that I'm not like this sinner and that sinner. In his mind, I'm sure he thinks he's being incredibly humble before God. The other man, he's humbled from the heart. And he's kneeling. And that is what the Lord Jesus is pleased with. And submitting to his lordship It's not something that should be hard for us. I tell this to young married couples. A wife submitting to her husband shouldn't be hard if she loves her husband and knows that her husband is going to love her like Christ loves the church. When we know that Jesus loves us and that he wants to lead us and take us to heaven and make us more holy, submitting to his will should be exactly the thing that we want to do. You know, here in this text, Jesus is not calling the man to submit so that he can abandon good things for worse things. He's calling the man to abandon lesser things for greater things. In verse 21, we see that Jesus is calling the man to abandon earthly treasures for the treasures of heaven. Look at verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. And that brings us to our fourth and final point of contrast. The contrast of rewards. Have you ever heard it said, excuse me, no, I'm sure you've heard that. Have you ever heard it said that God would never command us to do something that we couldn't do? Well, that's just, it's just utterly false. It's utterly false in so many ways. God commands us to obey His Ten Commandments. We don't do that. He commands us to love Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, strength, and everything. We don't do that. If you've been in Sunday school, you've been hearing about different teachers and bad things that they've taught. One of the things that you probably heard about was Pelagius. 1,500 years ago, he was teaching this same drivel. God would never command you to do something that you couldn't do. But in today's text, Jesus does exactly that. He commands this man to walk away from his idols. And he cannot do it. The man cannot walk away from his riches. And it's not because of his riches. It's because of his heart. He's free. But in a truer sense, he's a slave. If you've ever been in the throes of addiction, you perfectly understand this concept. I'm free. I don't have to go do that drug. I don't have to go have that drink. I don't have to click on that video and watch that pornography on the internet. 
You are totally free, and yet at the same time, you are completely a slave to the sin of your heart. Jesus tells this man, I'm inviting you to do this one thing to inherit eternal life. And you are as free as any free man has ever been to do it. So do it. And he cannot do it. He desires the kingdom of heaven. But he desires something else more than that. And that situation, brothers and sisters, should seem familiar to you. Our whole lives consist in, us, consist in us trying to decide which of the desires that war within us we will obey. I'm watching a really good movie that I want to finish and I don't want to get up, but I also have to go to the bathroom. Which desire am I going to obey? You know, I want to walk around at 200 pounds with abs and less fat in my face, but I also want to eat two, five pints of Ben and Jerry's a week. Which one of those desires will I give into? I want to love my wife and be faithful to her, but I also want to look lustfully at another woman. Which of these desires will I give into? The rich young ruler desired the kingdom of God. But he desired something else more than the kingdom. It's not like we walk around with one desire generating up within us at one time. We are constantly battling conflicting emotions and desires that are trying to pull us in different directions. And when we are dead in sin, we always go in the direction of sin, which is the direction that leads us away from the kingdom of God. Our hearts are our desire machines. And when our hearts are dead in sin, our desires will always be curved in on ourselves, as Augustine said. It will always be for that which does not please God. It will always be for the kingdom of this world rather than the kingdom of God. It will always be for ourselves over and against Jesus and others. We are all slaves to our desires. And that's why God has to give us a new heart. This is why we cannot think about regeneration as if it's just something that we do. Regeneration has to be understood as something that God does in us. Because unless he gives us a new heart, our old dead heart will always win the day. And we will always desire that which is displeasing to God. And not only does he give us a new heart, Ezekiel 36 says that he gives us a spirit that lives within that heart. teaching us to obey our godly desires. The Bible is clear that we're freed from the desires of sin and the flesh, and we're enslaved to the desires of Christ. In today's text, Jesus isn't calling the man to abandon everything for nothing. He's calling the man to abandon something that if he had a clean heart within him, would be very easy to do. He's telling him to abandon every earthly thing that's getting in the way of heaven and all of its treasures. He's calling the man to abandon a cheeseburger, which is delicious, so that he can get a perfectly cooked steak. He's asking the man to abandon an old Pinto so that he can get a Lamborghini, a regular old Ford F-150 for the King Ranch edition. I think that's right. 
because I'm a truck guy. Now, think about how easy it would be for a child to walk away from the things of this world. How easy would it be for that child? Especially if the child knew that he was going to be offered heaven. Children can't figure out why we as adults love the things that we love. You know, you talk to a six-year-old boy and he's like, girls, ick, you know. I don't understand. Why do you care so much about girls? A child can easily receive the kingdom of God because the lesser, lesser pleasures of this world haven't taken root in their hearts yet. They're still enjoying playing with dirt clods and imaginary friends, whereas the rich man has developed a taste for every lesser pleasure that this fallen world has to offer. And he cannot imagine a time where he did not desire those things. As one author put it, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot possibly imagine what is meant by an offer of a vacation at sea. We are far too easily pleased. The great irony of this story is that the rich young ruler was pursuing the kingdom of God, but when he found the God of that kingdom, he found him to be repulsive. This man was genuinely pursuing God. But when he found God, he did not like what he found. If only he knew that the God that was calling him to abandon all, to give up all of his riches to give up all of the pleasures that he had, had actually already done that same thing and was still in the process of doing it. 2 Corinthians 8-9 says this, brothers. Jesus Christ, though he was rich, became poor for our sake. The guys and girls who do CrossFit with me at our garage, uh, they suffer. They suffer a lot. It's not fun sometimes, all the time. But they also know that I never ask them to do a workout that I wouldn't do myself. And the most brutal workouts that I give them, I always do them, if not first, immediately after. I'm right there with them. It's easier to follow someone who you know is in the thick of it with you. This man, I I wonder if he would have acted differently if he would have known that Jesus, who had been with the Father for all of eternity, who had perfectly enjoyed peace, joy, love with the Father and the Spirit from all of time and eternity's past, if He gave up all of that riches to come down here and to live with us. He gave up riches to become poor. And He didn't even do it for people that would love Him. He didn't do it for people who wanted Him. He did it for people that rejected him and mocked him and despised him and who eventually hung him on a cross and killed him like a common criminal. Jesus Christ exchanged pleasure for pain. Like a child, he submitted to the will of his Father and he said, not my will be done, but yours. You know, the only other place where you see a man with a fallen face in your New Testament is where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's preparing to go die on the cross. 
this rich young ruler, he has no idea that the one who's calling him to abandon everything is going to do the exact same thing, but in an infinitely worse way. Jesus Christ is calling this man to give up petty pleasures like wealth. Jesus Christ is going to suffer the wrath of God. He treats us better than we deserve. He does not treat us like our status would call for us to be treated. He could have left us to try to work our way back to Him, to fumble around in the dark, like blind men trying to find their way to the light, but He didn't. He lived the perfect life that we could have never lived. He paid the price that we could have never paid. He did it for our sins. And then He declared us righteous in His sight, not based off of anything in ourselves, not based off of any of our works, but based off of His righteousness. He could have forced our submission to Him like a dictator, consider North Korea that we prayed about this morning. If you've ever seen these videos of when uh, Kim Jong, whatever his name these days is, goes and gives a speech, all of the government officials stand and they applaud. And everyone's afraid to be the first one to stop applauding because they'll be sent to the concentration camp. Why? Because everyone want to show, wants to show that they love the leader more than everyone else and that they're fully in submission to this leader. He could have done that to us. He could have made us be submissive to him. But he didn't. He gave us new hearts that delight to submit in his lordship. He could have called us to live lives of asceticism and self-flagellation, trying to abuse ourselves and pay the price for sin on our own backs with our own whips and our own ways, denying ourselves back into the kingdom of heaven. But instead, He calls us to deny ourselves in the lesser pleasures of this world so that we might receive the eternal reward of God Himself. Behold our God. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ in this way, I want to encourage you to consider this. Consider the way that He's loved us. Consider the way that He's thrown open the doors to the kingdom of heaven and He's inviting you in. And He's not inviting you to work your way in. He's inviting you to recognize yourself as totally and utterly helpless and to be carried through the threshold of the door. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian and you've never thought about God in this way before, you may not be a Christian. You may have fundamentally misunderstood the Bible. And if you've been living as a Christian trying to work your way back into God's good graces, and now you finally understand that you can't do that and that you've been purchased and that it's all of grace that you're saved, well, you may have even become a Christian this morning. Let's pray. Father, we receive all of the good gifts that you have for us. Our arms are spread out wide and we recognize that the ability to hold our arms out is even given to us by you. Teach us to long for our heavenly treasure. Teach us to long for you, to desire you. Take us to our home. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.